0: You can go ahead and open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers are going to be walking to the back. And just let us know. Slip your hand up into the air. We'll pass a Bible on to you. We would be happy to give you a copy of God's Word so that you can follow along with us this afternoon. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, please just take this as a gift. Take it home with you. There's nothing we would rather give you than a copy of God's Word. Now, some of you might have been expecting uh, Pastor Ian to come up here today and to ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, but he needed some more time to figure out what's going on with the sons of God and the Nephilim, so he told (laughs) me—if you didn't get that, come back next week. You'll find out what's going on there, but um, no, Pastor Ian is in Saskatchewan this week. Him and uh, Pastor Trevor from Calgary, they are teaching at a Bible school in Saskatchewan on church planting. So make sure you pray for our pastor this week as he does that and he'll be back with us next Sunday. But we're going to continue off where we left off a couple weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2 and we're going to finish this section. Uh, You might remember that we looked at verses 12 and 13 and we read actually going back up to chapter 1 verse 27 which begins with these words, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's writing as a prisoner in Rome, and he's not exactly sure what's going to happen to him, whether he'll be able to return to the churches that he's planted to be able to continue ministering to them, or if he's going to... um, if he's going to meet his death, if, if, if his imprisonment will end in his death, he doesn't know. And so he writes, hey, whether I come or whether I remain, live your lives in a worthy manner. And we said last time that this is the overarching calling of every follower of Jesus Christ. Give your full attention to living your life in a way that reflects who you are in him. Because of who he is, because of what he has done and what he has yet to do for you. In this uh, particular section of this particular letter to this particular church, the way that the Lord wants us to be thinking about living in a worthy manner of the gospel is by considering what it looks like to diligently pursue harmony with one another in the family of God, in our church. He wants us to look at how, how this is possible and what effect it has. And Paul, uh, in in chapter 2, leading up to the verses we're going to look at this morning, he, he says things like, stand firm in one spirit. Strive side by side. Share the same mind and the same love. He says, in humility, prefer one another. Consider others more important than yourselves. And after upholding the beautiful example of Jesus, at the end of the previous section there, we read in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, these words, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In general terms here, he says, look, you've got to work at this. You got to work at this. You got to put in the effort. You got to recognize that God's intention is to work in you so that you would lead godly lives by the power of His Holy Spirit. But as He writes these things, He has something in mind. And so, next, in the verses that we're going to look at this afternoon, we're going to see how the text gets even more specific about an extremely important way that the church is supposed to work out her salvation. We're going to find four answers to the question, how do I work out my salvation with fear and trembling? How do I work out my salvation with fear and trembling? And I want us to look first at verse 14. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We see here first... That in order to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in the context that Paul is writing to us here, he says, be agreeable, not argumentative. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, without complaining or fighting, without murmuring or arguing, without muttering or quarreling. He says, these things should have no place in the Christian life. Not even a little bit. Did you catch that? It, it doesn't say uh, do some things, right? It doesn't It doesn't say most days do all things, right? It just says all things. And there, there's an old um, joke that sometimes uh, preachers will tell when we come across this word in scripture. You know, they, you might have heard this. They say, well, you know, I looked up this word all in the Greek, and, and you know what it means? It means all. And all. I'm going to spare you that joke this time around. (laughs) And just say this. There is nothing in our lives that is not included in this phrase. Right? There's no exception clause here. It doesn't say all things but when. Paul just says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Having a complaining or contentious spirit and working out your salvation with fear and trembling have absolutely nothing to do with one another. You can't live in a manner worthy of the Lord if you're complaining and arguing. I just want you to think about that for a minute because um, grumbling and disputing, sometimes we think of these as, you know, not, not that bad, right? I mean, shouldn't I be able to once in a while Put someone in their place when they've done something that they shouldn't have done. What's, what's wrong with just maybe a little bit of venting here and there or some private muttering? Maybe you think, well, even if, if I do what I'm supposed to do, can't I just maybe grumble a little bit to myself about it? And of course, we know that the answer to that is no. We, we, we can think, if you think of kids, right? How often does it happen? You, you tell a, a child what to do, something that's good for them. Maybe serve somebody else, may, maybe look after themselves in some way, and, and they just kind of, uh, all right, you know, the eyes roll up. Maybe you hear a little, what was that? You know, as I walk down the hall. But if we're honest, we, we do this too, right? We, we think we, if we just maybe do the right thing, if we grumble and complain or argue about it, then it's not so bad. But, but listen, this is a big deal to God. Grumbling and, and disputing, complaining and arguing is a big deal to God. And We need to realize that and we need to look at our own lives and, and we need to think about where is this happening. And as we think of just the scriptures overall, do, do you know where this shows up predominantly in the Word of God, in the story of redemption. Maybe you're thinking of the Israelites in the wilderness, and if you are, then you would be correct. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he, he says that, uh, consider the example of what happened to those Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness and know this, that these things were written down for us for our instruction. And he lists a few things there, and one of them he says, And do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. God takes grumbling seriously. You you might remember what was going on in that generation. You know, they're saying, this, This manna is terrible. We want meat. Egypt was better. We're going to die out here. There's no water. And they were murmuring. And you remember what God says? Think about this. God says, these people have rejected me. That's what he says in response to their grumbling. And while it is most often directed at others and it works against the unity that we're supposed to be pursuing as a church, we need to remember that primarily grumbling and arguing is an accusation against God. Complaining and arguing is really saying to God, listen God, um, you don't know what you're doing in my life. You must not have things figured out properly for things to be going the way that they're going right now. And of course this is, Um, Not a minor thing for us to do. Grumbling and disputing is uh, indicative of and leads to a whole host of other sins. I mean, just consider that before we ever murmur or mutter, this is indicative of idolatry that's going on in our hearts. You know, we're thinking more about what we think we're entitled to, what I want my expectations not being met. This comes from a heart of anger, a heart that is filled with ungratefulness or discontentment. We grumble and we, and we argue when we reject God's purposeful plan for our lives. And this overflows, right? This, this results in other areas of, of bitterness and resentment, of uh, outbursts of, of rage, unkindness, uh, division in the church, or isolation, and it fuels more pride. Surely it begins with pride, but it's like pouring gasoline on the pride, and, and it just makes the pride flare up all the more. And so we do well to ask ourselves, when do I grumble? What am I prone to argue about with whom am I grumbling and arguing and most importantly why why do I understand what's going on in my heart when this is happening listen church we are faced with the reality today as we open up God's word to this particular page that it, it should be that no one is, is able to accurately charge us with being grumbling, contentious quarrelsome people Rather, we are called to be thankful, peaceable, content, and working toward unity. When these things are true of us, what Paul says next is extremely remarkable in the effect that it has on how we are characterized overall and how this gets people's attention. If, if grumbling and disputing are absent, then we would be described, are you ready, as holy. We will be described as holy people and we will significantly stand out from the rest of the world in which we live. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here, see secondly, be different, not common. Be different, not common. Now I think when we read this, these, there's three um, adjectives here that just jump out at us. They are uh, extremely emphatic. And they're used to describe those who refuse to be involved with any kind of grumbling or disputing. Blameless, innocent, and without blemish. To be blameless is to, to be someone uh, where um, fault is not readily able to be found. To be innocent is to be pure. It's, it's the same word that would describe uh, precious metals or, or uh, jewels that are, again, pure and, and, and found to be without any concern. Uh, children of God without blemish. This word without blemish means to, to not be defective in any way. And uh, these words, although sometimes... They might appear to be talking about perfection. They're not talking about perfection. What they're talking about is being above reproach. When I read these words, I think of the prophet Daniel. And uh, we would, of course, uh, we wouldn't say that Daniel was perfect, but do you remember when they looked at Daniel's life and they tried to find something offensive about him, they just couldn't. And this is what God's word says we'll be if we put complaining and arguing to death. If we can get a handle on these things, then we'll be described as blameless, innocent children of God without blemish. And uh, Paul is drawing here from the Old Testament in this verse in a couple of different ways. Uh, one way is from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And verse 5, put that up on the screen there. Uh, Speaking of uh, the Israelites in his day, those who were about to cross over into the promised land, he says, they have dealt corruptly with him, that is the Lord. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. See, they rejected the Lord and, and Moses knew they would continue to walk in disobedience, to turn their backs on the Lord and try and go their own way. They had grumbled and complained about him. And again, this wouldn't be the last time. They're supposed to be his people, and yet he says, "You're not my children. You're a crooked and twisted generation." But now, now in the church, for those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, this is flipped. Right the same language is used but now God says you are my children live in an unblemished way in contrast to the distorted broken and bent ways that are so common in the world around you What he's saying is show yourself to be different show yourself to be different shine he says as light in the world This word uh, light here is not the normal word for light. It's actually the word that's used uh, in scripture for stars. And the word for world is cosmos. And that can mean uh, world as we know it or world as in the entire universe. And so this uh, could literally be translated shine as stars in the universe. And I mentioned Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, uh, speaking of those who at the end of time will be raised to everlasting life. Daniel says in chapter 12, verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And Daniel, he's prophesying about the end times, about the people of God in all eternity. And Paul, he, he's drawing on this verse, and he's calling us, to look here and now like the people of God who will dwell in his kingdom forever and ever. And he says, look, look like that now. Shine like stars in the universe now. And the picture that this metaphor paints for us is so vivid. We're intended to picture the night sky. And what's common about the night sky? What's, what's ordinary and common about the night sky? The darkness, right? And what stands out? The bright shining stars. That's what's different about the night sky. The stunning and spectacular light against the backdrop of darkness. And God's word says to you and to me. He says, look, you should be able to have people look at you. And when they see your life, you should appear to them like the stars Against the darkness of this world, you should stand out so significantly from the rest. And as you consider this, I want you to think about the people in your life. Think about your neighbors right now, just for a second. Think about those who live around you. What do they see when they look at your life? Think about your family. What does your family see when they, when they observe your manner of life? Think about your friends. Like Think about actual people. Okay, I don't want to just rhyme off different categories of people. I want you to actually think about your neighbors. Think about your family. Think about your friends. Think about your coworkers. Think about those that you might go to school with. Think about people who just encounter you. Maybe they don't even know you. Maybe it's out at the store. I don't know. Think about what people see when they see your life? Do they see a bright shining star? One of the greatest opportunities that you and I have to shine our light is when in the face of difficulty, right, where there's occasion for conflict, when things are are going away that we wish they wouldn't be going, that they would see us not bickering and complaining or engaging and quarreling. That is one of the biggest ways we can shine our light before others. When people see something like that, they're like, wow, that's different. Right? That's not what I was expecting to see. That's not how I would act in the face of difficulty. Now, I want you to think for, for just a minute about the kind of light Maybe you have this at home that's on a dimmer switch. You know, the one that it, it goes up and down. And for some of us, the light's on, but maybe it's just at the bottom, right? Or maybe it's somewhere a little bit up. We're not shining as brightly as we could be. We're, we're blending in with the world around us. And I, I pray that today would be a, a, a call for you Not to be comfortable with this reality. and Maybe you say, well, how do I slide that dimmer switch up? How do I get to full brightness? How how can I be different? In this passage, God's word tells us specifically one of the main ways we can do this is to do all things without grumbling or disputing. We need to recognize that at its core, this is selfishness. That's what we're talking about. That is what is common in the world That is what was common in our lives before Christ. And we're called to be the opposite. We're we're called to display words and actions that come from thoughts of, of thankfulness and contentment and trust in the Lord and what he's doing in our lives in the big things and in the small everyday things. And in the context of this passage and this letter, we're called to be different by thinking more deeply about how we specifically as a church interact with one another. Remember, that is the flow of thought in what Paul is writing here. He says, be selfless. Don't be selfish. Look back at at verse 3. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Listen, you want to shine like stars in the universe? Think about how you can serve others. Don't think about complaining. Don't think about arguing. Don't think about being right. Don't think about getting your way. Think about how you can serve others like Jesus. You know, we often remember Jesus said in um, John chapter 8, He said, I am the light of the world. You remember that I am statement? Jesus, that's what Jesus says. I am the light of the world. And we talked last time about some of the both ends in Scripture. You know what else Jesus says in Scripture? You are the light of the world. Now, of course, he is the the light, but we're meant to reflect his light. And he says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. What are people going to think when they look at us, when they look at our church? Are they going to see a shining light? Or are they just going to say, nothing to see here. They look just like us. That's what Paul's getting after in this verse. Be different, he says, not common. What's it going to take to enable us to live this way? It's the hope that we have in the Lord. Look at verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This verse tells us be steadfast, not hopeless. Be steadfast and not hopeless. See, we can shine like stars in the universe here and now because we firmly trust in the Lord and in his promise of what's to come. Cling tightly. Cling tightly, this verse says, to the good news about Jesus Christ and about his eternal kingdom. This is what was always on Paul's mind. We can't read his writing, and not come away thinking that this man, day and night, didn't stop dwelling on the return of the Lord. Look just just at this letter, let alone the rest of his letters. Turn back again to chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Drop down in the prayer to Uh, Verse 9, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for what? The day of Christ. Flip over to chapter 3. In verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is never far in his mind from thinking about the day of Christ. He knows that Jesus will establish once and for all his glorious kingdom and that if we've held fast trusting in the word of life that that he came to set prisoners of death free that he came and through his blood on the cross we are forgiven of our sins that because of his resurrection from the grave we have the hope of eternal life and because of this we don't grumble and dispute if all this is true and we have shone brightly in this world and our lives will reflect a, a steadfastness of spirit then we will be with the Lord on that glorious day this is the hope that we have and this is what fuels for Paul uh, obedience to this command do all things without grumbling or disputing. Let me ask you, do you have this hope? Do you know the words of life? Do you believe that Jesus came to set you free from the prison of of death? Can you sing with us that he has raised you up from the pit? Do you know the good news? That though we are dead in our trespasses and sins, God sent his son to be the savior of the world. To hang on that tree, to bear the punishment that we deserved so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have the hope of eternal life. Look, Jesus came to die for grumbling and complaining. We don't um, we don't not grumble and not argue enough to earn our way into his kingdom. We could never do that. If you if you're here today and, and you're not, you're just not sure what this what Christianity is all about and maybe you you might think it's about earning a standing before God. Or having lived a life that when you come to your death and you stand before the Lord, he's going to look at your life and he's going to say, you know what, you did all right. You did, you did more uh, good than you did bad. Come on in to heavenly paradise. That is not what the Bible teaches. Those are not the words of life. The words are life, of life are that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us. He came to pay the penalty that we owed. If we will just look to him, if we will trust in his payment for our sins, if we will follow him as the Lord and master of our lives, if we will turn away from living for our own selfish desires, he will forgive us. He will give us new life. We'll be united to Christ, and we will live with him here and now, even though it is unseen, and we will one day, as we look forward to his coming, be with him forever in paradise. These are the words of life. This is the hope that we must have for the day of Christ. Romans chapter 1 describes uh, all of humanity apart from Jesus. And you know, it uses some interesting words. It says, They do not give thanks to God, they do not honor him as God. And I would submit to you that um, very closely tied to this is grumbling and arguing. I hope you're seeing how um, how heavy and how, how weighty these things are. Again, that we sometimes just glance over or accept in our own lives as not that big of a deal. We need to think of Eternity, we need to think of the day of Christ and that will help us live the way that he calls us to live. I like how one writer put this, we'll put this up on the screen. He says, we would do well, like Paul, to bear in mind what it is that will matter into eternity and allow that to dictate our priorities and drive our emotions in this life. Maybe a good question to ask is, how do I bear in mind the words of life? How do I hold fast to the words of life? And I would say this, think over them constantly. Discipline your mind to come back, like Paul's mind, again and again to the day of Christ, to the gospel of Christ, to the words of life and death. Think over them constantly. Train yourself. This is hard work, church. This goes back to, to working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We think of so many things. I, I think, I just said to my wife yesterday, I think our phones have pre or uh, reprogrammed our minds so that we can't think like we're supposed to think. We dwell on on the next quick thing, right? We're so distracted by the things of this world. We need to slow down and, and we need to meditate. We need to preach the words of life to ourselves. We need to surround ourselves with others who will remind us of the words of life. We need to listen to and sing gospel-saturated music. I was thinking as we were singing some of the songs today, if, if, if we wanted to just be reminded of how to hold fast to the words of life, we could just pull up the lyrics to one of our favorite songs and just read over those lyrics. We need to put those songs on in the home, in the car, wherever we are, and just let our our hearts and our minds be saturated with the truth of the gospel. We need to open God's word and other books that point us to the truth, to the words of life, and we need to ask the Lord to help us, right? If, If the scriptures... Uh, want to characterize us as those who hold fast to the word of life. Let us ask God to help us hold fast to the words of life. We cannot do this in our own strength. This is Paul's heart for the church in Philippi. And he tells them, "Look, listen, when this is true of you, this would be for his glory. Right when that day comes, he says he wants to be proud that he doesn't run or hasn't run in vain or labored in vain, and and he's not talking about pride in, in the sense of uh, his own self worth or accomplishments. That would be that would just go against everything he's already written. Right, he's talking about glorying in Christ and glorying in the people of Christ that are standing with him before the throne. First Thessalonians in chapter. Uh, um, you know what? I'm not sure what chapter it is. First Thessalonians. You can find it later. He says, "For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Whatever chapter that's in, it's good news. Amen." <laughs> Paul says. Listen, I'm ministering to you so that we can stand before the Lord. And I've spent all my energy, right? I'm in this prison cell for your sakes so that we can stand before the Lord and I can glory that you're there too. He said, listen, when we're together at last in the presence of our Savior, having come through this troublesome life. And having stood out as as blameless and innocent rather than complainers and arguers because of the sure hope of God's promises to us. Listen, it's all going to be worth it, he says. He says in verse 17, even if I'm poured out, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Lastly, how do I work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Be glad, not downcast. Be glad, and not downcast. Again, remember the circumstances here. Paul, he's writing from prison in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to be killed. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to go back to uh, be with the churches that he loves so dearly. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to continue in his ministry and plant more churches. He may be killed for being a servant of Christ. And we have this, this letter. We can read the communication one way, but we can, um, we can find uh, by inference many things throughout this letter. We, we know that uh, the Philippian church, they are facing opposition of some kind for following Christ. We also know that there's something going on in their church. Perhaps it's how they're handling the opposition, I don't know. Um, Maybe it's that, maybe it's something else. But the harmony of the church, the unity of the body of Christ is being threatened. In all of this, in, in the opponents, in the disunity, we know also from the vast number of times that Paul mentions it throughout this letter, they're having a really hard time maintaining a sense of joy. And Paul tells them here, he says, listen, even in the hardships that we face, we can rejoice. Joy, it's been said, let's put this up on the screen, it can be described as a settled sense of peace that accompanies believers in plenty and in want because they know their lives are devoted to the advancement of the gospel. A settled sense sense of peace right because we know the forgiveness of jesus christ we know about uh, the deliverance from death and the gift of life we know about the eternal promises of god and so paul says i have this settled sense of peace and so should you so should you he says and don't mistake um what's going on here where it says likewise Uh, You also should. That might maybe kind of sound like a suggestion. It's not. These are commands in the Greek. Be glad and rejoice. It's not a suggestion from God. Steve Lawson says these words. He says, Few commands could be more practical for our Christian lives. Even if you cannot rejoice in your circumstances, you can rejoice in the Lord. You can rejoice in God's holy character. You can rejoice in God's limited, limitless, I should say, big difference there, limitless goodness. You can rejoice in God's amazing grace. You can rejoice in God's perfect timing. You can rejoice in God's abundant supply. You can rejoice in God's all-sufficient provision. You can do all this even if you're sitting in prison. Facing trial and execution, you can know joy even when your circumstances are not joyful. That is a precious gift. Paul says, look, your faith is a living sacrifice of worship to the Lord. And and to be sacrificed necessarily involves uh, sometimes trouble. And the apostle says, look, even if I'm poured out, even if I'm killed as a sacrifice together with your sacrifice of faith, I'm glad. He says, I'm rejoicing about this with you. Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me because the word of life is alive in you. We're often inclined to dwell on what we lose in our trials and in our uh, difficult circumstances of life. We, we often um, rehearse in our own minds the cost it is to us to be different from this world. And it's true, we, we might lose comfort or reputation. We might even lose our livelihood or even our own lives. We might lose relationships. We might lose opportunities. But this passage reminds us all, rather than dwelling on these things, to to dwell on what we gain in the sacrificial offering of our faith. We gain eternal life. We gain a closer walk with the Lord. We gain getting to see others come to know Him. We, We gain getting to see others grow closer to Christ. We gain unity in the church. And Paul says, listen, rejoice in these things. Don't be downcast. In contrast to a grumbling argumentative spirit, this text tells us to maintain our joy. Listen, I know there are varying degrees of of trouble and so I hope you're not hearing me um, minimize maybe something very significant and and hard that you might be going through and say, look, just stop complaining, stop arguing and and just rejoice in the Lord as though that was a simple thing to do. I, I know that's a difficult thing to do. I think the Lord knows that that's a difficult thing to do and again, that's why I encourage us to pray and ask the Lord for help in these things. I I know that some of you are going through some very difficult circumstances. And yet, I I just pray that this text this afternoon would bring encouragement to you to hold fast to the word of life, to to rest in the glad confidence that though it might not be um, well in so many ways, The gospel of Jesus Christ is true and so it is well with your soul. The Lord is near to you today and there will be a day when you shall see him and be with him. And when you dwell on these realities, then you can have a settled sense of peace in your heart. You can rejoice because you're keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. Be agreeable, not argumentative. This is Christ-like submission. Be different, not common. This is Christ-like selflessness. Be steadfast, not hopeless. This is Christ-like steadfastness. And be glad, not downcast. Think of Christ's sacrifice. And in your sacrifice of faith, Seek to portray a Christ like sacrifice, and in this way, you will work out your salvation and live in a manner that is worthy of Him. May this be true in each of our lives um, personally, and may that overflow into our life together as a church, so that there would be much harmony and unity as we wait together for the day of Christ. Not grumbling, not arguing, not complaining, not fighting, but shining as lights in the universe for the glory of Christ. Let's pray.